welcome to the Move Daily Health Podcast, where we share information to empower you to be your own health hero. Hello and welcome to episode 42 of the Move Daily Health Podcast. I am Dane Wallace here once again with Freya Spence, and today we welcome to the show our good friend, Dr. Chris Clatchen. A chiropractor by trade, this title only begins to detail Chris's skill set. From an education background that started in ergonomics, Chris skillfully blends his knowledge as a strength and conditioning specialist with his expertise as a manual therapist. While Chris thoroughly enjoys working with the general population, with clients such as myself and Freya, he has a wealth of experience working with professional and elite athletes, notably as a member of the U.S. Olympic Committee sports medicine team, where he treated athletes at both the Sochi and Pyeongchang Olympics. As a therapist, Chris administers a functional integrated therapy approach, including orthopedic and biomechanical assessments to better understand patient needs. Driven by the assessment, a blend of contemporary acupuncture, active release technique, fascial abrasion, kinesiology taping, and joint manipulation is used to treat both athletic and non-athletic injuries. I honestly feel like I could talk this guy up for days, but instead, tune in for the next 60 minutes to hear one of the best talk about the ins and outs of manual therapy, what you should look for in a quality practitioner, and much, much more. Enjoy. All right. Well, Chris, welcome to the podcast. I'd ask you how you're doing, but we've been chatting now for about 40 minutes and we've experienced a power outage and all sorts of fun stuff. So uh, good times, right? Very true. I called the head of IT and they had everything fixed. Perfect. You do have that kind of clout from what I understand. (laughs) When I need to use it, I do. Can you fix the rest of the world? Uh, No, I don't know who can right now. Yeah, man. How are you holding up these days? How, how has COVID changed life for Chris Clatchen? Uh, it's interesting. Um, back into reading, I, I've cooked more in the last six weeks than I have in the last six years. And if I'm honest, probably in the last 16 years, I've probably cooked more meals. It's been amazing. Parts of it, obviously challenging because normally in a given day, I'll see, I don't know, 15 to 20 patients. That's like 20 meaningful conversations. My hand is in tissue all day. But it's also interesting, like all the little like nagging aches and pains they're gone because i'm not like in these weird postures to do manual therapy all day so good and bad yeah that's interesting i was wondering about when you said hands and tissues i was wondering how your hands were doing (laughs) my hands are loving this (laughs) (laughs) that's probably the biggest break that they have ever had i mean certainly in the time that we've known you but likely for a decade before that as well yeah, and even when I've been on vacation in the past, there's invariably like if I'm surfing with a buddy, they'll be like, oh, my shoulder, can you work on it? So even then, I'll still use my hands on vacation. There's, I don't think there's ever been a period since I started 10 years ago where I haven't done some type of work in four or five days. So This is going to extend your career longevity, Chris. That's, that's why we planned this. This is a planned pandemic. Just another conspiracy theory. It's all the Kairos out there who uh, caused this then, right? It has nothing to do with 5G. It has everything to do with chiropractors. <laughs> oh, don't, let's, let's not start on 5G. Yeah, don't worry. With that said, can you give us a little bit more background about what got you into chiropractics? Um, yeah, sure. I'll give you the Reader's Digest. Um, so I saw a chiropractor growing up who, you know, I'd go in and I guess you'd say that they subscribe to like the subluxation style of chiropractic and... They, you know, I'd go in and they would do the sort of same seven manipulations every time. And she's a wonderful woman. And I found it like somewhat helpful for a lot of things, uh, but it didn't really ever call to me at that time. 
I, I just, it didn't speak to some of the other like needs of like soft tissue that I felt like as a, a young athlete I needed. And I actually was sitting in on a, um, my sister had a consultation with an orthopedic surgeon at the Fowler Kennedy Clinic in London, Ontario. And I sat in on the consultation. I was just completely enamored with what happened there. And by the end of the thing, I realized that I wanted to be a sports doctor, at least when I was 14 years old. So I went back to my high school guidance counselor, Mr. Wren, who decided that I was going to do high school in four years and head off to like McMaster to do med school when I'm done. And I went to actually University of Waterloo, did a kinesiology degree, and I actually went the other way and I went into ergonomics because it sort of, um, my dad has like an engineering company and it sort of bridged the engineering space to the human space. And I thought it was really interesting. And the best thing about the ergonomic core program is that I despised it by the time I finished it. So I'm 22. I then feel like I have to start all over again. I actually moved to Korea and I was living in South Korea and I threw my back out playing basketball. And one of my buddies is like, oh, you can go see a Hansa. And I was like, what the hell's a Hansa? And they're like, oh, it's like a medical doctor. So they do a medical degree. But instead of doing like an internal medicine residency, they do uh, like a Eastern medicine residency. So it's like a fusion between Western and Eastern. So I walked in, I saw the guy and he like looked in my eyes and he looked in my mouth. I was like, dude, it's my back. And he put me down on the table and he scraped me with washa, so like the jade stone. He struck some acupuncture needles in me. And my science brain at the time was like, this is a bunch of BS. Like there's no way this is going to work for me. And I stood up and I felt like a million dollars. And I was like, oh, interesting. Science brain has been contradicted. Like what's up with this stuff? So then when I moved back to Toronto, I was awaiting like med school interviews and I was basically handing out resumes to like any studio, any personal training space. And I was watching like healthcare workers work. I was watching like manual therapists work and I was walking in and watching osteopaths work and chiropractors work and physios and all these different types of manual practitioners. And then I sort of got put in contact with, they were the Maple Leafs chiropractors at the time who used like uh, combination modalities. So they still adjusted like a chiropractor, but they also did like awesome soft tissue work and they did awesome um, acupuncture stuff. And it was then and there, I realized that that is exactly what I wanted to do. So I went to chiropractic school and when I finished it, I sort of begged and pleaded um, to be a part of their mentorship. And that was like 11 years ago and here we are today. That's awesome. I, I quite like your comment about science brain has been contradicted because <laughs> I feel like a lot of people have points like that where they're just like, wait, I thought everything was sorted in an equation and this is not. I saw a car when I was young and it was one of those things where you were told that, you know, you go to the car once and you're going to have to keep going back to get the same results because the back could go out again. So you're going to have to go back to see the car. So there's a maintenance protocol. And I think a lot of cars actually get a really bad rap for this. Now, your background was a little bit different. So can you kind of explain your approach and what has changed over the years? It's interesting. Like when I came out of CMCC 2010, I, like, I've always seen the value of the manipulation. So that like high velocity, low amplitude manipulation there is a time and a place. And I think like I was trying to represent the opposite side of chiropractic so much so that I was actually using less manipulation in my first little bit. Um, so I was trying to do most of my corrections with soft tissue work and with like acupuncture stuff. And then I found out where I could fit it. And I just sort of, uh, my algorithm evolved more and more. And I kind of realized that I needed this like trilogy of things. I always needed to be able to do something with the joint, whether it be like a more osteopathic, like 
gentleman amp or it needed to be like actually an, an aggressive high velocity low amplitude and i also needed to work with the myofascial system and i also needed to work with the nervous system with like the electroacupuncture so i guess it's been an interesting evolution whereas like uh if i felt like my manipulation stuff wasn't up to caliber i was having to sort of revamp that i've learned from some really amazing people around the world there's this great um, physiotherapist that works with the um he's a british guy and i've been on tour with him at different sporting events uh, Gordon Bosworth is his name, and he was a, one of the uh, physiotherapists that worked with the um, the British national track and field team going into the 2012 Olympics. And these guys accomplished amazing things. I remember hearing a quote that they had over 50% injury rates about two years outside of the Olympics, and they got it down to like 7 or 8%, like a team of therapists with like him, Jared Remagina, uh, Dan Paff, and a few others. And I watched Gordon work, and I realized how valuable the manipulation was when it was the right person and when it was the right thing. Mm-hmm. And Frey and I have obviously had conversations around when it's definitely not the right person and it's definitely not the right thing. Yeah. And I think I've just, my algorithm, because I have more data points with every passing day, every passing month, every passing year, my algorithm gets a little bit more refined of when it's actually the thing. So like now I'm looking at what are the axes that are um, malpositioned or dysfunctional within the sacroiliac joint. Do I actually do a high velocity thing? Gordon's got this thing called the GLP, which is the Gordon leg pull, which when I learned it, it was like life alteringly good because like these crazy SI things that were really slow and complicated to fix when it was the lesser arm of the greater or of the uh, sacroiliac joint, they just came back on board so quickly, which is a really valuable thing. If you've got an athlete on your table and they've got to jump into like perform at the Olympics and they got to get up to snuff. I taught acupuncture, so I took the course at McMaster. It's a contemporary medical acupuncture course. 2010, I took it, and then there's an advanced course in like um, assessment, another advanced needling course, which I think I did 2011, and then I actually started to teach after that from like 2012 to 2017 or 2018, and even just the teaching, like we would teach some parts in the cadaver lab. So you know, when I thought I knew the point as a student. And I thought I knew more as like a more advanced student. I was always refining it as a teacher. So I was like looking at that point on the cadaver going, oh, if I'm like a millimeter in the wrong direction away from the fib head, I'm not getting the common colonial nerve. So the refinement has been like really fun in the teaching space. And then you take that right into clinic on the Monday when you go back and, and work with patients. Yeah, I always found that teaching and still find that teaching is really rewarding just to be able to break it down for other people, but also refine your own skill set because surely with bodies as well, you have so much variability within that, that if you get more and more data points, you can find it more easily within each body and within all the variabilities possible. Within all of that, have there been peak moments though, either in treatment or in teaching or anything that have created a distinct change in your approach? A few, actually. Uh, actually, I'll tell you one moment that where it was like you always learn from your your failings or your missteps. Um, so I was working with an elite track and field group where I probably would say out of the twelve people, like seven of them went to the Olympics and like three of them medaled that year, twenty twelve. And one of the women was um, she was a Norwegian sprinter and very fast. And I remember having on the table. And it was that moment where like you're trying to do as the person in form they want it done. So like I'm working way through her soft tissue. I've got a lot of time to work. So I just kept working and I was working pretty aggressively. 
And she got off the table. She's like, I feel incredible. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. She's going to crush it tomorrow at her meet. And she ran super slow. Um, she probably ran like, I don't know, four or five tenths slower than her PR, which is not good. And it was that moment that I realized that you can't actually just do what the person wants, that you have to do what you as a therapist knows they need. And in the space of performance, you're not actually just, you're not treating for pain. It's like a secondary or tertiary necessity. You're treating for like optimization. And actually that same physiotherapist, Gordon, um, gave me a good little clinical pearl. We were talking about one athlete we both work with and he's like, I know she has to get off the table with a little bit of discomfort every time if she's going to go and perform. And this is like a two-time gold medal winning athlete. And I thought it was a really interesting thing because like therapists were often thinking that we need to, you know, solve the pain situation, but you need to solve the performance and function situation first and foremost. And I had experiences at the last Olympics where um, we had one athlete who was seeking treatment for pain and I had to have a meeting with her and be like, and, or with all the other practitioners be like, Hey, let's not use that as our, like our KPI, uh, our key performance indicator. Let's use performance as our key performance indicator because like she's not doing well and and she's going to keep seeking chiropractic adjustments because it's going to, it's going to pump her endorphins up and she's going to feel good for like 15 minutes and I'm going to watch her whole system come off board immediately thereafter. Um, so that's been an interesting education. Um, I had some like really fun moments where I had a guy in the 2014 Olympics who had like, he ended up having a minor tear or small tear, first degree tear of the myotennis junction of the gastroc into the Achilles day one of competition of a two day competition. And like normally you'd say, that's it. Like you're out. The guy could barely walk at the end of the, the race. And it was then that I realized how much um, redundancy the system builds in to basically perform or like you know if you got to run away from the line you got to run away tear or no tear mm-hmm. and it was amazing that like if we queued up all the redundant tissues and took tension out of the um the dysfunctional or, or the, the torn tissue it was amazing what we could accomplish and the guy ended up walking away with a medal the next day and a, and a week later so there's been some really fun moments with that as well That's interesting because that's something that I speak to clients about. I know we've had conversations about how even just like treating for pain, looking for a fix or pain not matching necessarily pathology or tissue or degree of tissue damage or even tissue damage at all is very challenging um, because it's also a different understanding for the patient. They may have a different understanding of what pain means and therefore different goals. And it takes a very savvy practitioner to be able to do that dance and um, understand what it is exactly function-wise that person needs right then, whether they're a high-performance athlete or, you know, needing to get through their day. But then also removing fear from that, that even if fear remains, we do have an incredible amount of redundancy, which is why we see such amazing athletic feats. Like, I'm not an Olympian. I'm not like an amazing athlete in that regard at all. But I also know the conditions under which I've been able to complete races, which I'm not like saying, yay, go do that to everyone else. But when it's a case of like, okay, I'm going to be stuck up on this mountain if I don't race down. So I'm probably just going to race down (laughs) and find a way to do that. But just broaching the topic of pain itself, like how do you work with patients to help them understand what it is that you guys are trying to achieve that day. And you can speak general pop or athletes. 
Yeah, I think that's a great question. And first and foremost, I think you're selling yourself short. I've, I definitely know of your athletic endeavors and feats, so kudos to you on those. But if so, it's an interesting space. Like, I think the headspace of the athlete on average is different than the average headspace of a general pop. And even within general pop, like, everything exists in a bell curve, right? Mm-hmm. And even like patient A can walk into the clinic in like a good parasympathetic, sympathetic nervous system space one day uh, with the exact same condition. And then three days later, that balance is out of sync for whatever reason. Like what I'm seeing in the midst of all this is like a lot of anxiety is exacerbating people's symptoms. No surprise because the nervous system and the musculoskeletal system and the digestive system and it's all one system, you know, it's one sort of symbiosis. So I think I like to educate in the space of like just giving an understanding of what the gate theory of pain is. And like one needs to understand that there's not a direct correlation between the degree of trauma and the degree of pain you experience. And if like you use techniques to meditate, which I think is a great space for that sort of anxiety based, like chronic pain patient, you can turn your pain off if you like really Mm -hmm. are, um, are are capable in the meditative space, or you can at least change it, you know, Mm -hmm. and knowing that you have that power, I think is a very valuable thing. So first and foremost, if it's that kind of patient, I think it's really important to take that into consideration. And that's something as a practitioner, you hopefully get better and better at as, as you're doing your dance and getting, gaining your data points. The other thing that I'm a big fan of is like a test and retest thing. So like you, as you go through the initial assessment of uh, a patient, like you're always building a case as to what are the things that are dysfunctional that are resulting in a dysfunctional system that are for them, uh, causing pain. That's what they care about most. Well, it depends on who you're talking to, but if it's general population, it's mostly that, yeah, this hurts when, when I do it. So hopefully you find a way to change that with like, you apply some type of therapeutic modality, you retest it and they're like, Oh, that feels better. And like, if they don't notice it, make sure you make mention of it. Oh, you did this earlier at 90 degrees of shoulder abduction. It pinched a lot you like you reported a seven out of 10 of pain. Now you're like 150 degrees and it's a three out of 10. So that right there creates a change in them and it creates a change in their psyche. And I think it's really important to understand that. Mm -hmm. Um, Like if there's anything that I put in like grade six education, it would be like understanding a bell curve, nutrition and like gate theory of pain and understanding Mm -hmm. that you can change that sort of psychological representation of the pain. Mm-hmm. And pain, it, it exists at so many levels, right? There's a nociceptive input at the tissue trauma space. There's an input at the dorsal horn of the spinal cord where there, where that pain perception is then sent to the sensory cortex. Mm-hmm. And then things can go crazy because you create these like epigenetic changes in your dorsal horn or your spinal cord or in your sensory representation of that pain space. And then things get really tricky. I, we could probably speak to this for hours and like a pain specialist is obviously better to do it. But if you've read like George's, um, the, the brain that changes itself or the brain that heals itself, I think it, he does a great job of explaining all of these things. Yes. And his books were, um, I mean, you and I have chatted about them and about how he did. He even did one recently with, it was a republication of Feldenkrais, but he put commentary throughout it, which was to me just incredible because it just showed that so much of this knowledge about neuroplasticity, but without perhaps the imaging that we have now, 
well, definitively without the imaging that we have now, was actually understood like a hundred years ago. And people healed from massive traumas. Uh, they taught kids with who were basically written off as like, oh, you'll this kid will just be mute and paralyzed for the rest of their life and taught them how to move again. And so that's the kind of thing that it's like, okay, if, if that is possible, then why is it not possible to also be able to manage and control our pain? And I certainly know that with various injuries, uh, <laughs> understanding and learning the value, like you said, of breathing and the effect that that has even just like on our vagal nerve and how we can down tune the pain response. And then we get a better read of what's actually happening. Mm-hmm. Um, because if it's just everywhere and we're also fearful and stressed, it's actually harder to communicate with a practitioner as to what's actually going on. Absolutely. And it's interesting because like, a lot of times I have to be very careful to not go down the red herring space with a patient because they perceive something and then they create their own narrative around it. And it's so easy to run you in the wrong direction as a therapist or as a physician. So it's just like having the data points, you know, oh, actually we're running the wrong direction right now. Like I'm going to let you talk about this because you need to do that for you. But what I'm really going to prioritize on is the thing that you talked about like 20 minutes ago. Right. Yeah. Do you like, do you find that there are some common themes in terms of challenging beliefs that patients arrive with either regarding chiropractic care, their expectations of it, or like imaging and their understanding of pathology? Well, let's go back to the imaging thing for a second. Well, imaging tying in with pathology and you and I have talked about this quite a bit where there's a disparity in the information or a disconnect between like a positive imaging test and that being the pain provocative thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is an interesting space. Like you talked about what was being done a hundred years ago in Feldenkrais. And like we were using observation and intuition. Mm-hmm. And, and then we stopped using that as well when all of a sudden we had an MRI that showed this creation or we had an MRI that showed a meniscus tear. And we had a surgeon that was willing to cut open. And I'm never going to discredit the space of orthopedic surgery because it's like a hypercritical space. But we're obviously seeing evidence showing that there's a lot of positive imaging findings that actually are completely asymptomatic. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, I love to communicate that with people. And so often, especially in Canada, like, you know, you have back pain that's like, it's not responding. Well, maybe it's just not doing the right thing. Or like people want an MRI, you know, they're like, I I, I, like, I I need an MRI. Uh, Okay, is it ridiculous? No, it's not ridiculous. It's always just in my back. But like, not likely to actually be the disc in that case maybe and um there is a considerable disconnect there because you see so many for example supraspinatus tears in an asymptomatic population Mm -hmm. um so even if there is a tear and they have shoulder pain is it just that they're not able to centrate that joint and that's probably the more likely issue Mm -hmm. um i think it's really important to make the disconnect between structure and function or connection disconnection So I always try to teach the concept of like the function is the priority here. And if we can restore function, the structure is like a secondary concern. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Like even um, with my exploration with hip labral tears and cam quote unquote deformity, like my opinion now is actually it's not really a deformity. It's probably giving my hip you know, some sort of stopping point because <laughs> it still appears to not have any. So whether that's considered an adaptation or a dysfunction, I don't know. But the surgery behind it, uh, more and more, they're stepping away from doing surgery for that because the side effects of that are 
fairly significant or the risks are, especially within the hypermobile population. And really it depends on the filter you put on it. It's like, is that something that is insidious and going to create a lot of problems long-term or can we restore the function? And is that actual like tissue damage, but then consequent change in bone structure actually an adaptation? And it's just, it's an interesting conversation to see that occurring. And even when you mentioned the shoulder, it reminded me of some of um, my figure skaters uh, who sustained labral tears because they were in pairs and that's a common thing that happened, but they don't want to do surgery because that's actually going to limit the range that is needed for their sport. Yeah. Like you'd be hard pressed to find a professional baseball pitcher that doesn't have a slab tear. Oh yeah. Um, You'd be hard pressed to find an NHL hockey player that doesn't have a a labral tear in the hip. Yeah. Um, Meniscal tears. Yeah. So, and it's like, they just restore function. And if you can't get to where you need to, in terms of managing pain and performance in a person or an athlete, let's turn over the next stone in the process, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas like the surgical stone is somewhere towards the last stone. But then again, like you have to make that decision and go through that process much quicker with someone who's trying to get back to like the performance phase. Mm-hmm. I, I think this segues us really nicely into the topic of uh, movement assessments. So we've heard a lot of people kind of come down on the need for assessments, whether it comes to movement or running, some stating that they really aren't necessary because tissues and joints will just adapt over time. In our practice, we rely heavily on assessments to make proper movement choices for clients. Um, So where do you use assessments? Every day, every person, critical necessity. Um, I like, you're just like, you're aiming the gun blindly if you don't have an assessment, right? Yeah. You have no idea where the target is. Uh, I think this is a loaded situation. I think like going back to, I really want a functional assessment as a therapist. I really value some type of movement and functional assessment when I um, work with a strength coach or, or personal trainer, I really value what their eyes pick up on in that space. Like, do I think I need to like test one rep max on people to understand everything? No, but I need to understand quality of movement and quality. So like going back to my trilogy of sort of uh, assessment and correction, I need to see what's happening with the neurological system. Like what's the overall tone in the musculature? What's their just state of being? And maybe we tap into like HRV or something in that space if like it's a, a performer. What is like the local space? Like what's happening with the myotone and the dermal tone? And I have to have an understanding. And then coming back into the myofascial um, situation, like you'll see me anytime I work, my eyes are closed trying to pick up on like palpatory information. I'm assessing joint ranges of motion, but I'm also trying to s- assess like adjacent soft tissue structures to see how they're impacted in all of this. So I think like it's an interesting thing as a, a novice, you have to get a very well-defined assessment system that you can easily figure out and then you grow from there and then you sort of like trust your intuition and move into other things. But like I'm a firm believer that you need something to assess each corner of that tri- triangle, something to assess the joints, something to assess the myofascial situation, something to assess the nervous system. Yeah. So like I did muscle testing that was adapted from applied kinesiology uh, 14 or 15 years ago. Yeah. So I, and I think it, I really want that to happen in the training space. Does it need to be an FMS? Like, I think, again, if you're a novice, then it gives you numbers and it, it gives you somewhere to start. If you're a more seasoned practitioner, you're going to go well beyond that. Even what you see, you're going to change in how you, um, how you apply your uh, programming. 
Yeah, we're uh, we're really big on that. Like back when I first started, I guess was at a clinic, so we had uh, we actually had like fitness testing for the most part. Um, but if it was an injury rehab person, we had joint specific testing or assessment, I should say. But then that has changed and evolved. And like, unless they're a performance athlete, we tend not to need their output stuff right off the bat. We need way different things and, and movement. And it's, it's interesting because we do focus on movement. We focus on how every joint moves, how is their synchronicity as well within kinetic chains? Can they perform simple tasks? And we look at standardized tasks there rather than assigning a score of just like how well each joint moves within sequenced tools. And when we use that consistently, we're able to build a better picture. It's not to say like, you know, I think where people get really, uh, caught up in negative on assessments is that they're saying that you're trying to claim an end result from said assessment. Really, I think it's it's more about just being really good at observation. And if you never standardize an assessment, then how are you refining your observation skills as well? And actually to loop back to ergonomics, um, I remember that class that I took when studying human kinetics completely put me off because every level of assessment had to be plugged into an equation that had way too many variables to actually accurately account for. And in our group projects, what we found the end result, like the, that were, we did some factory studies related, like nothing to their desk positioning or anything else. It was just like, oh, well, this person's actually too large for their chair. Like that, that was the end result of one of the studies. And I remember being like, I'd like to work with humans and look at the body rather than plug into equations. It's not to say that that's all they do, but I just was so turned off that I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not doing this. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of interesting things in the space of ergonomics, but it's interesting too, having done it for four years, I come back to it every day with general population. Every single day I have to be like, Hey, do you always look to the left at your monitor? I was like, is it like 10 degrees to the left? He's like, how do you know? I was like, cause you come in like every three months with left sided neck pain. So like, it's actually, it's interesting what I thought I was never going to use again. I use literally every day. Well, and that's the interesting part is like, I found that the equations really put me off, but the general understanding of like observing a human in their space is spot on. And I've found some shoulder issues and neck issues that people had. It was just because they were checking their phone too often. And these days I noticed in um, the younger athletes I'm working with, they all started last week reporting right arm discomfort because their hours on a computer just went up like 300% with this lockdown. Oh, yeah. So the amount of clicking and everything, yeah. All of the like compromised work setups around the world right now are, uh, let's just say, if I went into practice again tomorrow, I'd be busy with all the ergonomic things and all the new runners that have like just picked up running in the last six weeks. Oh my God. It, yeah. Yep. <laughs> and I'm not going to say that I pulled my hamstring last week doing some sprinting that I haven't done in a while, but it was minor. I'm fine now. So it's not like I'm one of those people, Chris. Um, yeah. We'd be very busy if we could practice right now. Maybe as, as busy as we'd ever been. Agreed. And that's also another thing where we look at, we're near where we can see a lot of runners and I keep looking out and, you know, from some comments that were made about like that running assessments aren't necessary. And I was kind of thinking, but you, you do need to teach people how to run. So like a lot of people have gone decades without running. They're not little kids who are just intuitively doing something to catch up to an older sibling. Like 
we're looking at adults who have sat at a desk all day perhaps um, and might be pretty stressed or might have other inherent patterns and they may need to relearn how to run. So assessing how they are currently attempting to run is a value in my opinion. Absolutely. And like you could take that from the newest of newbies straight up to like the, the most elite of the most elite. Uh, like in the other thing at the elite level, like if they're working, don't fix what isn't broken. Yeah. But I, I tell you, like every time I'm out for a run, I like I'm tempted to carry business cards with me and be like, I'm sorry. Like, I know that's going to hurt tomorrow. I've been watching for the last three kilometers and I'm so sorry. But um, it's it's an interesting space and I don't want to discourage anyone from the running space because I think it's like, you know, if you've read Board to Run, um, McDougall's book, and I think there's something pretty special about it. And like homo sapiens are what we are. Maybe some say because we could run and for the, the duration that we can run. But um, I think there's a lot to be said for teaching how to do it, whether you're running 100 or you're running 100 miles. You know, I think there's like, and even at the highest level, again, you're, you're working for efficiency. But yep. I'll tell you, I see, I see so many things that I'd love to clean up, but I can't be that guy on the running trail. But I've always been that person in my races where I'm like, okay, I know how fast I'm going and this person is running that way. And how the hell are they where I'm at running that way? Like I would be in pain. I know that. Um, like the only reason I was able to run as long as I was running competitively was because of my attention to certain details. But it also is a matter of like, okay, but how long are they going to be able to run in that particular fashion? Like how long does your body and everybody's, everybody's body has a different tolerance point to certain stimuli, including sitting, for example, like I don't do well with it. Dane can be be fine. So I think that's part of it is like, it's efficiency. And it's also like, do you, how long do you want to do this for? And we do that with runners, with strongman athletes. It's like, yes, you can get away with that. For sure, your body can can adapt to that. But long-term, is that what you would like? Because that could shortchange the amount of time you could ultimately do it for. Yeah, I think there's many sides of the coin that you can approach. I, I, first off, like the capacity of the system is incredible. Like when you and I have seen these people in these races and just go, oh my God, like how are you still here? So like kudos to the, the capacity of the, the human tissue. But at the same time, like it's micro trauma after micro trauma after micro trauma. And it's interesting because like the general population, they think of injuries as like a traumatic moment, like nine times out of 10. And we all know that like, it's probably the opposite where it's traumatic one out of 10 and a traumatic like insidious develops over time with like repeated micro traumas nine times out of 10. Yeah. And I think like, that's a really important thing to educate. And then like, I, I love to take video of people running on a treadmill for like we have a treadmill in our clinic and I'll just show them and they'll be like, Oh my God, I do that. And they're like, Oh, look at my left leg. It's just like, it's all over the map. And I'm like, yeah. And you ran 14 K yesterday and you know, six K the day before that, like no surprise that you're here with X, Y, Z injury. Right. Mm-hmm. Or, and, and I think it's also important to understand that like the injury isn't necessarily the deficiency it's like the symptom of the deficiency. So it's important to look at the system and like your plantar fascia keeps going up, but look at your crossing over midline with every step. Um, Let's maybe understand why, oh, look at your pelvis or look at something and just understand it as a more systemic thing than as a 
like a, a local um, tissue thing. I remember when I was working with the uh, U.S. Olympic team going to the 2018 Olympics. I just one athlete. She's like, when you first started working with me, you never put my hand, your hands where it hurt. And I was like, I was so frustrated by that the first like half of the season. She's like, then it always went away. And I was like, I couldn't figure out how you didn't touch the thing that hurt. I was like, well, it was the symptom. We had to figure out what was causing it. And she's like, now I, tr- I judge a therapist by how quickly they go to the place that hurts. Nice. <laughs> That's actually... Yeah, no, that's that's smart, quite frankly. I do have a couple of clients who actually gave up on therapists because they said, well, they didn't go to the place that hurt. And I was like, yeah, I, I, I know, but that's because the root issue was elsewhere. But that's where you'll still see people, like if their knee hurts after a run, they'll look up knee strengthening exercises. Yeah. And it's like, hey, guys, but we got to look upstream and downstream. But to be fair to their defense, like they are marketed to that, you know, it's like your knee hurts after a run. Here's a knee strengthening exercise and here's some Advil. And, you know, all of us who work with people like that are crying and pulling our hair out. So it's it's challenging because you have those really long held and long standing myths around body parts. And it's like backs are inherently fragile, according to a lot of people. But yeah you know, we've got really great hips that if we know how to use them, it's actually, they're not that fragile. Absolutely. Yeah. It's an interesting space of even a junior therapist still doesn't understand the complexities of the system. And the more I know, you know, 10 years into doing this, the more I know, I don't know. Yeah. And nothing is like a binary situation and, you know, give me 10 disc herniations and I probably need to do 10 different types of treatments to like 10 different people and even give me one discrimination on one person and then one day I need to do one thing and another day I need to do an entirely different thing. Um, so how could you scour the internet as a total newbie and, and get it right the first time? And actually, that being said, the human body is an incredible thing and its ability and capacity to heal itself is remarkable. Uh, so you, you can probably accomplish a lot. And what I'm finding in this space when I'm having these like tele-rehab, uh, I thought it was going to be far less effective than it, uh, like, you know, the system is so complicated to me, but we're able to give people simple fixes that are actually reasonably effective, like quite effective, surprisingly. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's great to hear. And something I'm actually pretty fascinated with just to kind of tail on the end of this is I know you deal with a lot of uh, professional athletes, elite athletes, but for general population, since we were just talking about running, what are some of the chronic conditions and things that you treat the most? Like, are they running related? Is it, you know, office related from sitting too long? Are there any things you're seeing more often than not? Um, yeah. So I guess if like the average sort of medium pace runner, endurance runner, a ton of like patellofemoral pain syndrome. So is that a knee problem? Um, I always say the knees are like a response or a symptom of the ankles and the hips. Right. And I'm sure you guys would concur with me on that one in many yeah. ways. Um, but at the same time, like if someone's vastus medialis isn't operating even close to optimally, you're not really balancing the force vector of that patella. So you're going to get like a symptom there. I'd say that's probably the most common thing. Um, Achilles tendinopathies, I see a lot of. So that, that can be a whole slew of different things around foot mechanics, around hip mechanics, different types of like IT band issues, especially when people are ramping up and they're not sort of adhering to physiological laws where you need to like not just jump out and do 10K every day because um, the body can't uh, acclimatize to that. 
uh, definitely like someone who sits at their desk eight to 10 to 12 hours a day, like there's going to be hip issues. There's going to be like, you know, shortened muscles that sit there all day. They can't just be put into a lengthy position under load, like immediately. So mm-hmm. that, this is a loaded question, Dane, but there's a lot of different ways I can take the answer. <laughs> yeah, no, that's totally understandable, man. <laughs> <laughs> I think the key just being that it's adaptation to whatever stimulus is placed upon the body is where we get results better or worse. Yeah. And and then training, like where you see the deficiencies and like, I've, I've always been a proponent of S and C strength and conditioning for runners, like regardless of their level of ability. And you see studies time and time again, showing maybe it doesn't immediately change the, um, the pace of the time or the VO2, but their running economy changes and their, mm-hmm. and their system is more compliant. So I think with like the right strength coach doing the right things and maybe not pushing their own mandate too much, you, you find that sweet spot. Yeah. And the biggest thing I actually find, cause I work with a number of trail runners, you need strength to be a trail runner. Like you're uh, I mean, you need strength and stability to be a runner period. But I found, especially with strength, cause it's basically like stretches of sprinting downhill and then lunging uphill. So the main feedback when people do that is like, even if their times are are similar, they recover faster and they feel better when they're in their race or their run. And that I think the way people feel is really not something that we can measure that well, that we're not proving in research one way or the other, but it's massively valuable is that patient or client feedback on the entire process. Yeah, absolutely. It'd be interesting. I'd be curious. I've never seen studies, but looking at the anthropometry of the average like road racer versus the average trail racer, and I would I would probably add twenty pounds to the average trail racer if I had to guess. Like, I think what's the average weight of a like an elite marathoner is like a male is like one hundred twenty seven to one hundred thirty two pounds or something. Yeah, I bet it's easily you know twenty pounds on top of that. And like you obviously ran in the trail racing series, but you definitely need to be more. Um, more, uh, well, yeah, be stronger. <laughs> More, uh, are you searching for a diplomatic word there, Chris? <laughs> Let's just go, yeah, have to be stronger, yeah. Yep, it is that it's good simple. Word. Yep, yep. So uh, a couple more questions. What advice would you give someone on sourcing a practitioner? And we asked that just because we're curious. I know that there are a multitude of different answers, and I um, have had the privilege of being your patient for years, but prior to that had been to a lot of different practitioners and really struggled with the fact that I was going to a practitioner that wasn't willing to discuss things. I like to be able to discuss things and learn. And also the cyclical adjustments or whatever it was doing the exact same thing every single time to me, it was just kind of like, well, what's the point here? Where's my exit strategy? Because the body can heal. And if I'm coming to you every week for six months doing the exact same things and I'm not being educated in the process, then clearly something's up. So if you were to give advice to yourself or to someone else on finding a practitioner, what key things would you look for? Key things. Um, so anywhere in the world, you're going to look for a manual therapist. I don't care if it's a chiropractor, a physiotherapy, a physiotherapist, an osteopath, an AT. I think they should put their hands on you. Like There should be some type of manual work the day that they see you. I don't think it necessarily needs to finish that way, but I think manual therapy is such an important tool to start the the change space happening. Um, I think that they should have multiple modalities. Mm -hmm. Um, 
it should never just be a machine. It should always be like hands and like in my case, I use electroacupuncture, but like I'm really big on this whole like trilogy where it's like it's the joint, it's the myofascial, and it's the nerve, and never just one. You can get results with just one, but I think you you need to find a therapist that has a combination of techniques in that space. Mm-hmm. Um, I like humility, like you know that practitioner that didn't listen to you. That, who knows? Maybe they're having a rough day, but I think there should always be a certain amount of humility. There should always be like a certain amount of empathy in the space. So finding that, I think it's tricky. Like if I were to find a practitioner for a patient of mine who's moving to XYZ space, you know, I might scour the internet at first. I always look for like one of the things I did ART, you know, like 12 years ago is like a a certification. So I'm I'm a proponent of like at least starting there, but it doesn't necessarily need to be ART. It could be whatever soft tissue technique that I think is decent. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really big on people having had mentors. So like, look at their credentials, you know, look them up, uh, look at the reviews, understand, you can probably see in all of that, what their motivating factor is as a therapist. Like, are they monetarily driven? Or are they like patient driven and patient results driven? So mm-hmm. those would be the things. Those are great guide points, for sure. And not doing x rays every appointment. No, and like there's a time and a space, um, but yeah, like I, we obviously know that I didn't go the direction of the like sort of subluxation thing. Yeah. Um, I have to defend my space as a chiropractor. I think chiropractic education is like incredible for any manual therapist. I also think chiropractors that go out and take other modalities, like I've been doing osteopathic courses for the last few years. And I think because of the foundation that happened in the sciences and in like pretty in-depth anatomy and biomechanics that happened in the chiropractic space, I then had a better capacity to use these other tools. But yeah, if you're just going to go out and whack and crack, like it's just, it's not my preferred way. It's just Mm -hmm. definitely not my preferred way. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things when we've referred people to you over there, like past while that we've known you, it's interesting to see the reaction when people ask like, okay, what's their designation? And we say, and then we also say, but please know he does this, 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 and we list off your other credentials because we've found that there's, you know, there's a range, there's a range in training, there's a range in chiros, physios, MDs, NDs, like there's a range in absolutely every industry. I mean, accounting, like we've had a terrible experience with an accountant and now we have a much better one. Like it happens everywhere, but when it comes to the body, people are understandably nervous. And so knowing that a practitioner has a lot of modalities and has worked with populations much like theirs brings about a whole lot of comfort. Yeah, it's interesting space. I had a patient maybe a month before the quarantine started, and she's a professor, so she's a very intelligent, um, uh, she's a runner, uh, very intelligent person, and I discussed, like, wanting to use acupuncture, and she's like, hey, like, I've never had great results with the acupuncture, and I've, like, I've looked at the research, and it's not favorable. I was like, okay, I understand that. I'm like, are there good professors and are there bad professors? And she's like, okay, where are you going with this? I was like, are there good accountants and bad accountants? And she's like, okay, I think I know where you're going with this. I'm like, I think I'm pretty comfortable in the space of using acupuncture. Like, I can tell you that I'm going to produce a change today because here's what I see as your deficiency. And I know that this as a tool is the most useful way and fastest way for me to get you fixed. And 
and she let me do it and she emailed me later that day and she's like okay you know anytime we need to do acupuncture we're good but like there is a bell curve in everything and back to why people need to understand statistics at least on the like grassroots level and like a seasoned practitioner is like i'm infinitely better than i was on day one and still with so much room to grow in all of the modalities i use and the modalities that i will pick up in the next 20 years of my career Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I love that you just touched base on that because it's the truest thing in the world is that there's good practitioners and bad practitioners in literally every field. And so if you swear off a certain treatment methodology just because of one bad experience, you can be really setting yourself back for the rest of your life. Yeah, and then same goes financial advisor, anything, right? Yeah, so, anything. anything. Yeah. My first four experiences of acupuncture, <laughs> I blacked out. Not because I'm afraid of needles, I'm not. They just left me on the needles and like my system was like, yeah, this isn't cool. And I passed out. But then with you and with one other practitioner, like I I never had that issue. It was a completely different experience. And I'm glad that I never wrote that tool off. Yeah, it's interesting how much experience, like I cannot say enough about data points and like having to find the algorithm for Freya or the algorithm for the Freya like person. And I think, you know, as soon as you sat on my table, I won't discuss your case too much because this isn't the time and space, but like understanding where you need to go in your algorithm and my treatment algorithm with you is such an important thing. Mm-hmm. And that's like one of the things that I, I loved about my mentorship, whereas I just sat in a room for 20 hours a week watching these like really awesome therapists work. And I didn't even ask questions. I would just watch what they did and the result that they got. And that would create this like, if then do this. And I got to refine that algorithm over and over again run that like program loop in my head and i remember talking to one of the mentors i'm like okay like what's what's the whole idea behind this mentorship he's like okay well it took the lead mentor like 20 years to get his his whole thing figured out takes the rest of us 10 and the next group it'll be like seven and the next group after that it'll be five years to like gain a sufficient level of like data points so this is pretty cool absolutely um and so we're getting towards the end here, Chris. So I want to ask you, what advice would you give a new Cairo on building their skill set? Uh, first and foremost, find good people. Like find someone that does it like the best in the profession. And I guess like find out what your value system is. I don't know if you guys have read John Berardi's like change maker. Like if you want to make a lot of money, well, first and foremost, don't become a chiropractor because you'll be a crook. <laughs> but like if you find someone that does the dance well between monetary gains and treatment results, then go mentor under that person, like become their protege, bang, borrow, steal, whatever you can to get into that space. If you want to work with, you know, high level performers, professional athletes, find the people that treat those people and treat them well. And like, not only watch them treat one, and like, don't just look at the website to see if they, they do that, but like watch them treat 20 and mentorship is, is critical. The other thing is like the art of observation, I think is an underestimated tool in the space. I, I, I was like, as I mentioned, very science brained and like, you know, CMCC, my school, it was very big on like evidence informed treatments. And I think that's really important, but you can never discount the fact that you need a certain level of intuition that comes through observation. And there's a great book, I hope Kong, the art of medicine of where like, in performing medicine at the highest level of uh, the application of any science, it's an artistry and you have to find out how to access that inner artist. And I think observation is the best way to do it. So if it's watching movement, like 
really watching it, understanding it, doing it over and over again, like Monet would have done with uh, brush strokes on, on a canvas. And if it's palpation, like I, I remember I wasn't getting the results my first year and I talked to my mentor. I was like, what, what course do I take? What book do I read? And he's like, dude, shut your eyes, shut your mouth and just feel. He's like, you're going to get so much information from your hands. And I'm in a palpatory based profession. So as soon as I started to do that, I actually could trust my hands within the first maybe year. And then when you've like met your cap with what you can learn in one space, go to another space. So like, don't define yourself as a chiropractor or a physiotherapist or an osteopath. Define yourself by like a profession of manual therapist and then go to the next space to improve it. Like that physiotherapist I worked with six years ago where I learned such awesome stuff or the osteopath that I've been like working under for the last three or four years. And don't ever define yourself by your certificate. That's such great advice. Yeah. Boom. <laughs> Mic drop. <laughs> Love it. That's good. And we're just wrapping up. So we do have some final wrap up questions that we ask everyone. And I know you did just list a book, but we always ask what impactful book have you read in the last year? Um, can I say two? Yes. Yeah. Um, so one would be peak, um, Dr. Mark Bubbs, and I'm like going through it again. I just, there's so much great stuff in there and working with like, you know, elite, not even elite, like working with general pop, you have to know what's in that book as any type of health practitioner. Every physician should read it. Every manual therapist should read it. And obviously every naturopath should read it. Um, so I really enjoyed that. And then um, David Epstein's range. I love, I loved as well. And I think it's really interesting because when you, I talked about the artistry of the application of the science. And when you look at like the best scientists and the best physicians, the ones that win like top level awards, they always have like an artistic background or they have like a, a side hustle or a hobby that's like they play the violin. Mm -hmm. And I think becoming an expert generalist rather than a specificist allows you to sort of, it allows you to manage so many more things. So yeah, those would be my two. Yeah, we own and love both those books. Range, I was just so happy was written. So happy because after all these years of like all these specialist driven books being written, it was really nice to see something that made an argument in literally every single domain for broad thinking and broad application. Like generalist is, is actually a really great way to be able to combine ideas and identify patterns. And, you know, when it comes to health, I've always said like, if you're not a, an elite athlete or competing in one given sport, like do as many things as you enjoy and can do because, you know, right now with quarantine too, it's funny, like pools close, we can't swim, but we also have like a dozen other things that we really enjoy diving into. So it, yeah. it turns out it helps us when we're in a pandemic too, for generalists. And for all the parents out there with like kids in hockey or kids in soccer, or kids in football, first chapter I think is amazing talking about the comparison between Roger Federer and other athletes where he did all kinds of sports and all of them served him and it also kept his like interest in tennis right because he got to do everything yes or if like you want your kid to play an instrument don't just say hold the violin for the next seven years and slap yeah. them on the wrist every time they leave you like need to let them go through that process and fall in love with something yeah so yeah. 100%. And uh, we had Dr. Mark Bubbs on the podcast not too long ago. So we'll definitely link that into the show notes too. But he is a, a very, very smart man. So thank you for bringing up that book because it is excellent. <laughs> yeah, I'm probably going to pick it up again when I finish this. Yeah, now Excellent. I'm just sitting by my bedside. I'm going to read through a few more chapters tonight. 
what is your non-negotiable daily self-care tool or habit? Um, I, I've started meditating the last like seven or eight years. I'd say I don't meditate every day. I definitely know when I'm not doing a great job with it and I need to bring it back into the daily realm. So it's, it's negotiable, but when it's, when I need it, it is non-negotiable. I need to move. I just know me. I need to move some way, some shape, some form. I'd say five to six out of seven days. Like it's, it's funny sitting in quarantine and not like my, my work is very physical. So there's obviously a lot of movement in that. And I, I've definitely upped like the bike, the run, the workout space. So those are non-negotiables. Uh, eating like like I have to only eat non-processed food. I'd say ninety nine point nine percent of the time. So like eating pretty clean, I'd say would be a non-negotiable. I understand that game. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, uh, this whole quarantine and being inside all the time is just it's the body is so confused, man. I find that I'm just tired all the time, even though I'm not doing a whole lot. It's just the body is very confused these days. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. It's a weird space. Um, and if you had five minutes with someone, what one thing would you try and impart to help them with their well-being? Oh, it's interesting. I just listened to a podcast with Dr. Zachary Bush. Uh, Dr. Zachary Bush. I grew up on a farm, and I like I actually had a roadside vegetable stand. It was like my first kind of job. It's amazing. Um, so we would grow like you know produce and sell it. And I never really appreciated what was happening until I don't have access to that. Like you know, well, especially now with not being able to get into farmers markets. Um, so this is like a total tangent from what we've talked about this whole podcast. But understanding where your food comes from, making like a more conscious choice, and he talks about soil. And I think that I hope there's a huge renaissance coming in the farming space. And like, just because it says organic kale, like, like he was talking about working with cancer patients and he found that they were getting better results when they ate Twinkies than, the, than when they ate kale. And he's like, how's that possible? And he's like, because the kale was grown in like horrible soil and it's like leached of its every living nutrient. So like support farmer's markets. So like know where your food comes from, read the label and like stay out of the inside of the grocery store as much as you can surf around the outsides and buy the produce, buy the, the fish and the meats, whatever like health style or healthy lifestyle choices you want to make, but like be able to pronounce everything on a label. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're thankfully still ordering from the farmers. So we'll have to give you the link because I feel guilty yeah. that you haven't had access. <laughs> we're still ordering yeah. directly from them. So we'll share that with you. Finally, where can people find you these days? How about we include like currently with telehealth, but also afterwards? So I work at a, a clinic called Athletes Care. So I'm at two different locations with them. I like travel with like teams and or players and are four people sometimes. So that's actually a lot of fun. Maybe I do that two, three months a year. And then a little bit of work in Leslieville where you guys have seen me at my loft. And beyond that, like in the digital realm, I'll probably launch my own website in the next, I don't know, couple months, uh, drclatchin.com. And in the Instagram space, uh, D-R-C-D-K. And I'm doing a little um, IG live thing this uh, Friday with um, Scott Fournier. Um, so he's a sort of functional movement guy. And we kind of have a really nice symbiosis in how we think. So if you want to tune in, awesome. Or like you're listening to this in six months and we're still doing it, tune in anyways. <laughs> but yeah, those are the spaces. <laughs> That's great. Thank you so much, Chris. We really appreciate you taking the time today and sorry for the spontaneous tech issues to add to the COVID madness. I think we needed that. I think that's what this time in space calls for. Yep.
flexible thinking. Absolutely. That was awesome, guys. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks for coming on. We'll catch everyone next time on the Move Daily Health Podcast. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. To hear more, head on over to Stitcher or iTunes and subscribe to the Move Daily Health Podcast. And don't hesitate to leave us a review. Thanks for listening.